The scene on the road that day was not really that strange. It was customary for Jewish mothers in the first century to bring their babies to a renowned rabbi that they might be blessed. They especially liked to do that on or about the first birthday of the child. What's really amazing is Jesus had time for the children. He was on his way to die now. The days of his life were running away from him like sand through an hourglass. He was going to do the great work of salvation, but still he had time for the children. His disciples thought that inconceivable, that he could be bothered by the likes of children who had no standing in that day. But Jesus radically reversed their understanding of children when he rebuked the rebukers, saying, How dare you? Let these children come. Do not hinder them. Do not forbid them. He took them up in his arms and blessed them. That which Jesus demonstrated so beautifully, namely his ability to take time for the children, is precisely the challenge before the modern family. Time is, has a great deal of competition, especially family time. 1973, for instance, the average work week in this country was 40 hours a week. By 1987, it has become almost 47 hours a week, with 52 for the professional, 57 for the executive, and that rate keeps climbing. Somehow we hold in high esteem those driven persons, like the boss who declared in a smoke-filled room to all of his employees, the weekends were given to us by God for catching up, not for falling farther behind. Or again, the Apple Computer Company and its development team in Silicon Valley, when members of that team proudly wore those t-shirts declaring, we are working 90 hours a week, and loving every moment of it. What does this do to the family? There has been a drastic reduction in family time. In 1960, the average parent spent 30 hours a week with their children. In 1990, that figure has decreased to 17 hours per week. Perhaps even more troubling is this realization that came out of a Pittsburgh priority management study that revealed in the average home, couples, where both couples work, and 57% of married couples, both of them have outside employment, in the average home, those couples spend four minutes per day in meaningful conversation and then wonder why the romance dies in their lives. Those same couples who spend four minutes a day in meaningful conversation with each other spend on average with their children 30 seconds per day in meaningful conversation. I held my breath the other day when a member of my own family applying for a job said to his boss, his would-be boss, I want to make it very clear before I accept this job, God comes first in my life, my family comes second, and my job comes third. I didn't know whether or not he had a chance to get the job, not in this culture. 
But for those among us who do not have commitments like that to God and family, what happens to the family that suffers time impoverishment? We hear a lot about food and clothing impoverishment. Let's talk about where the real problem is. Let's talk about time impoverishment. For those who live trapped in time poverty, because in many instances we've sold out to a materialistic culture. What happens to those family units? Experts tell us the first thing to go is the family rituals. Family rituals like mealtime. The Roper Poll organization said the number of Americans who ever sit down to share a meal together continues to plummet. It just keeps going down. No one ever manages to get there at the same time. No one ever manages to take the time to have a sure enough sit-down meal together. Consequently, our homes become like train stations where we check on one another's schedules and we wave at one another occasionally as we pass. What becomes of the children whose parents have no time for them? Parents who will grow up one day and discover to their shock, now that they have time for their children, their children no longer have time for them. What happens to those children? They're driven to the electronic bubble. Already watching television three hours a day, that's going up every year. They go to the video, they go to the television. And what do they find there that is a friend to grace? What do they find there where a Superman sleeps with Lois Lane and Batman goes to bed with his girlfriend? What kind of help do they get there? They are seeing a systematic trashing of all that we hold to be holy in terms of values, virtues, and important people in our lives. I think about my own calling, that of the ministry. It is a calling. There are those who call the ministry a profession, but historically we have understood the ministry not as a profession, but as a noble calling. How is the ministry portrayed on television? Either the minister is a thief and a fake, or he's a clod and a bungler, an incompetent. We tolerate that trashing. And we tolerate it for two reasons. We tolerate it because we have apathy and epidemic proportions when it comes to anything related to our historic virtues. We tolerate that trashing because of apathy, and we tolerate it because many of us are old enough to take that with a grain of salt because we know it isn't true. We read in the papers about a preacher going bad, backsliding. Every group does it. But it still makes the papers, thank God, it's not all that common an occurrence. And many of us know that if it weren't for the B.C. Davises and the Jimmy Varnells and the people who came into our lives at crucial times at whose feet we sat when they preached the word of God, we wouldn't be diddly, we wouldn't be anybody, we wouldn't know who we are, let alone be here today. We understand that, but how will our children understand that? when we are letting television and the media absolutely determine their values, their virtues, their way of visioning, not just Moses and Jesus and Paul, but the pastor of the local church. What happens 
when we begin to substitute gadgets for time. Those who know these kinds of things say that in 1957, the American people reached a level of satisfaction of their, with their lives that has never been surpassed. 1957, thus far, is the banner year. Our satisfaction with life has never come close to 1957. I need to remind you, in 1957, 9.5% of our homes had air conditioning, let alone our churches. And that would include Houston in August. 4% of our homes had dishwashers. Less than 15% of our families had more than one cars, one car, and none of them had a VCR or a home computer. No one has ever demonstrated that the collection of stuff has any relationship whatsoever with quality of life in terms of family. Our children don't want stuff. They want us. They want mothers and fathers who, like our Lord, have such a commitment that when they come to us, we're their father. Experts say the decline in, in parenting time is the single greatest factor in the breakdown of the American family. They tell us that for a parent to be there for a child is a profoundly reassuring experience that extends throughout the life of that person. It provides a kind of internal armor that fortifies them for everything that follows. And we have yet to see all the results of children for whom their parents did not have time. Now, as that is a challenge to the parents of this modern age, it's also a challenge to the church. Because Jesus was talking not just to parents, but to the church when he said, do not hinder them from coming. This church has to take a long, hard look at whether or not we are hindering children from coming. We have to do that because our consultant, when he first came to our facility and studied it, declared, you are almost hostile to young families. He said, "If you do, your facilities are, not your people, your facilities. He said, if you don't believe that, go out to the parking lot with a child who can walk and one that has to be carried or held by the hand and try to get them in the stroller as a single parent and get them from there into the nursery. Especially try that on a hard day. A bad weather day. And we can't say, we can't make the assumption that simply because our generation was able to do it, this generation is willing to do it. We can't do that. I know people within the sound of my voice, who don't talk about refrigerators. They say iceboxes. And some of us can remember when our, our churches didn't have indoor plumbing, but they had a path out back, just like the houses from which many of us came. We can't make those assumptions. My sister's here this morning. I remember when she came to see us once in Savannah, Georgia. She just bought a, a beautiful luxury car. She is proud of that car. She was going to take us for a ride in it. Before she had a chance to do that, my oldest brother called and said, isn't sister down there? And I said, yes, she is. He said, well, when she starts to come back home, ask her to bring your bird dog. I want to go hunting for a few days next week. 
I want to borrow your dog, so get her to bring the dog back with her when she comes. And my sister heard that conversation, and when I hung up, she exploded. She said, that dog's not going to ride in my car. (laughs) And I said, now, hold on a minute. You are getting the cart before the horse. I haven't even inspected your car. (laughs) I don't know if that car's good enough to transport a fine bird dog. (laughs) You have to think about priorities. And baby boomers are waiting longer to have their children, or I should say their child. On average, it's one child. And when they have that child, that child is a China dog. They come to our church, they're a team of inspectors. They want to know, how do you treat your children? What kind of facilities? Don't talk to them about ice boxes. And don't tell them it's good enough for us, you can jump the curb if you want to come. Don't tell them that. You won't see them again. Churches in the next century have to be service-oriented. Mother's morning out. Kindergarten. More schooling, I believe, than kindergarten. The time is coming when the church might have to take education back over again. Because Whitehead said if an education doesn't instill a sense of duty and reverence, it's not a Christian education. I don't know about you, but I want my grandchildren to have a Christian education. I want to have a room. It may be an auditorium. I I want to know that our children will have the best of our Christian heritage. I want assembly rooms where our children can sing the old hymns until they know them by heart like we do. They can just bellow them out in July. I want to have a room where we can put a model of the Holy Land uh, with projectors above and lasers and the whole work so we can put in a tape and let them see the journeys of of the children of Israel right there before their eyes. I want to fix that room for them with a, with a panoramic screen so they can see slides at the same time and stand beside the Jordan River and, and, and go through what Jesus did beside that river. I want them to stand there in the Holy Land in, in their very own room and, and do creative dramatics, learn the parables in their own words. I want to write those lessons so dramatically and so securely across their little minds and hearts they'll never forget them. I want it to become a part of the fabric of their being. And you can't start too early. I remember the story about little Margaret, who had a new baby brother. Little Margaret asked her daddy, how long before my little brother can talk? And her father said, oh, Margaret, it's going to be, well, probably close to two years old before you can understand him. She said, that's not true. He said, what do you mean it's not true? She said, I heard in Sunday school, I heard someone read from the Bible that Job cursed the day he was born. (laughs) Now with kids like that, you can't start too early (laughs) to talk to them about God. I, I remember the story of that mother who came to her minister and asked, Uh, what time, when should I start his religious training? And he said, how old is he? And she said, only five. He said, you're only five years late. 
Children can tell on the second day of their lives whether or not the person who holds them has a caring commitment. You can't start too early. The Washington Post ran an article not long ago that talked about these crazy times in which we live. They said children are doing now at 12 what they used to do at 16. They're doing, and and they know at 8 what they used to know at 12. They're knowing and doing at 3 and 4 what they used to do at 7 and 8. So we must offer them God early. If they're old enough to know who the Ninja Turtles are, they ought to know who Noah and Nehemiah are. And if they're smart enough to recognize Bert and Big Bird, they ought to be smart enough to know who Barnabas and what Bethlehem is. We need to quit kidding ourselves. Our only hope for this culture is in the church of Jesus Christ, reaching out to the children of this society, to all children, whites, blacks, browns, reds, yellows, the whole thing, and bringing them to a saving knowledge of him. I went to Sunday school in a church that had one class. I had one teacher, bless her heart, I had that teacher. I thought when I got out of there, I didn't know anything about the Bible, and I didn't. I just knew all the old stories in the Bible. That's all I knew. I just knew the stories. I couldn't tell you what the chapter and verse is. I just knew all the stories. And those prophets were my cousins and my kinfolks. And if we're sending our young people out into a world like ours, and they don't know their own story, they don't know who they are, they're spiritual orphans, and you may as well take them down to Galveston and put them to sea in a pasteboard box. Friends, they aren't going to make it. Now, I know it's harder now. I understand that. When I was a boy, the closest thing we had to pornography was the underwear section in the Sears Roebuck catalog. By the way, my mother's here, and and she would tell you that that was off limits, too. (laughs) The only choice we had about drugs was whether we were going to use an aspirin or a BC. So don't come here with all that business about it's the same for every generation. It's not. It's harder now. We've seen the breakdown of the family unit, and every family in this church has suffered from it. And now the church can't get those children every week. They're here one week and then they have to go with a, with a divorced spouse the next week. And many times the one they go to be with doesn't hold the same values. Many times that spouse is an unbeliever and they can't come to choir. They can't come to rehearsal and they can't come to Sunday school consistently. And it's tough. But I want this church to be in partnership facing all the harsh realities of the times in which we do ministry, I want us to be in partnership in doing what Jesus did for the children, holding them close to his heart, taking them up in his arms, holding them close to his heart until their heart began to beat with the heart of God himself. I want it to be for us like it was for that moving company. 
I've told you about it, the moving company that moved King Tut's treasures, that Egyptian pharaoh's treasures when they were here in America. And the people were so ecstatic about seeing 8% of the treasures they found in that pharaoh's tomb. That company was so proud that they moved them from city to city. They had a big poster on the back of all their trucks. We moved a king's treasure. 100 years from now, when this church begins to prepare for the next century, I want them to look back at this generation and say they carried a king's treasure. They gave the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They gave their best and their finest to the next generation. Isn't that what you want? If that's your vision, if that's what you want for children, then I invite you to come and Unite with the fellowship of this church. Share with us in the great work that God has given us. Will you come and unite with this fellowship as we stand to sing our hymn of commitment? Mm-hmm.